Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. For those of you who do not know me well, um, I grew up in a Christian family. I come from a um, Christian heritage, so to speak. And growing up as a child, I clearly remember, uh, you know, sinning all the time or breaking the law that my parents said before me, as all children do. And I remember getting consequences day in, day out. You know, I was, I was not an easy child. But one thing I uh, clearly remember growing up was thinking that my parents were perfect. Um, I grew up thinking that, you know, I was the only one who seemed to be getting in trouble because I broke their rules. And my parents seemed to be this rule setter and they seemed to be about the rules that they set and that they were perfect. Um, and it's just not me, because I remember asking Grace uh, maybe a year ago or so, uh, if she thought that, uh, you know, because when I sin against her and I ask her for forgiveness and she seems puzzled, uh, I remember asking her if she thought that uh, dad sinned and she thought, no, I don't think so. You know, and that's what, um, as little children, um, our children have a perspective of us as parents about. And the reason I say this is because sometimes as Christians, we can have that same perspective about ourselves. As Christians, sometimes we can fail to see the sin in our own lives. As Christians, sometimes we may see the sin or we may see that something's wrong there and we tend to minimize it or we tend to brush it away. We tend to hide it under the carpet. We think it's no big deal and it does not need to be dealt with. But you see, the reality of being a Christian in this fallen world, as followers of Jesus Christ, is that we still have sin around us. We still live in the presence of sin. That it is still a battle with our flesh that we deal with daily. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, being saved does not mean that we don't sin. And if we say that we don't sin, then we're probably not saved. Because that is the reality of every Christian. And so this morning, as I preach, my heart is heavy as I think about, just not myself, but even within our church and, and Christians at large, and the devastating effects of unconfessed sin and minimized sin and ignored sin that it has in our lives. Because make no mistake that sin always has an impact on our lives. My heart is heavy as I think that there might be those among us who are stuck in our sin and we cover it up with the veneer of Christianity, with the veneer of appearance of holiness on a Sunday morning perhaps, that those among us that have sin in our hearts, in our lives that we don't take seriously and because of which our joy in the Lord has been sucked out and we're living from day to day in this endless groaning and endless depression and our Christianity and our faith seems too burdensome and seems too difficult. It feels like a bunch of rules that we have to follow and there is no joy in the Lord. Seems like our sin may be overbearing and too burdensome for some of us to a point that we are starting to doubt whether we're really saved. We're starting to doubt God's salvation in our lives and for some of us even starting to doubt God. If this is you today, I hope to encourage you this morning from the word as we look 
at what a right response to sin looks like. You see, sin is real and sin is there, but how we respond to sin matters. And that's what makes the difference between how a Christian lives and how a non-Christian unbeliever lives. That makes a difference between how a Christian walks in the joy of the Lord and a Christian who finds their faith so burdensome. King David, like us, was a sinner in every way. And if we rightly uh, understand his story and the history of King David, he's probably committed what we would consider sins that are way worse than any of us have committed. And yet, God calls him a man after his own heart. God still kept him as king over Israel. And you know why? It's because of how he responds to God when he sinned against God. His response and repentance to God. And so this morning we're going to look at Psalm 51. And it, Psalm 51 records to us what it truly means to be broken. What it truly means to be contrite. What true repentance really looks like when we respond to God's conviction of our sin. When we respond to the sin in our lives. Now the context of Psalm 51 is found in um, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I'm, I'm not going to read that, but... What you see in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is that it was a season when the kings would go out into battle. So kings of the area, the nations would go out into battle and they would fight each other. Obviously we know David had a lot of blood on his hands. He was a man who was constantly in conflict and in battle. And what we see here is the picture of David, instead of leading his men into battle, he stayed back in his palace in Jerusalem and he's relaxing. He's taking a break from his kingly duties. He's ignored his kingly duties and he's relaxing. And in a moment of weakness, he notices Bathsheba bathing um, um, outside. And instead of turning away from that, instead of looking the other way, instead of fighting against his lust and his flesh, what does he do? He continues on. He continues to pursue that. And one thing leads to another and before you know it, he's committed adultery. And it doesn't end there because that adultery leads to a pregnancy that David didn't want to take responsibility for. So what does he do as king? He tries to manipulate the situation. He tries to manipulate her husband over and over and again. And then when that fails, he finally in his twisted mind plots to have her husband Uriah killed in battle by sending him to the front lines knowing that he would die and trying to act innocent about it. This is not, this is, this is not the... David, that king, that, uh, the, the young David that killed Goliath that we're talking about. Is it? It is the same David. The same David that we sing a lot of Sunday school songs and, uh, you know, that has written all these psalms. That is the very same David that has gone to a place of darkness and twistedness. And just to show the depravity of man's heart. The Lord is displeased with David and what he has done. And the Lord sends his prophet Nathan to David to confront him about his sin. Where he's conveniently married Bathsheba and completely hidden his sin from God, thinking that he has escaped. And God confronts him and his sin. And in Psalm 51, what we see is David's response to God's confrontation of his sin through Nathan the prophet. So in Psalm 51, we really see the heart of David as he cries out to God. We see the heart of repentance as he cries out to God. 
verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 51, it it's accurately captures the state of David's heart, the state of David's mind as he has recognized his sin and he comes before God. Look at what he says. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. Verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. This whole psalm is characterized by David's heart that is broken. David's heart that is contrite. He's crushed, he's shattered over his sin. He recognizes that there is no amount of sacrifice that he can do to redeem himself. There is no amount of burnt offering that he can offer to redeem himself. He's morally bankrupt and he recognizes that. And he realizes that the only hope that he can have is to come before God with a broken heart. You see, there's no amount of attending church. There's no amount of affirming, you know, um, affirming theology. There's no, there's no amount of giving, to, giving money to the church. There's no amount of evangelizing. There's no amount of any Christian work that we can do that will cause our sin to be forgiven. There is nothing that we can do. We are morally bankrupt before God. Except for God doing that work in us. And David absolutely recognizes that. This brokenness of David is the essence of this psalm. And even as we think about where we are, where we are at with the Lord this morning, uh, uh, my prayer is that you would be broken in the same way as you think about where you stand before the Lord. Unconfessed sin, minimized sin, sin that is hidden away. Because we all have that need to be right with God. And as we read Psalm 51, we'll see what happens when we don't. And so this morning, uh, as a means of encouragement, I want to observe five things or five responses that David makes when he's confronted with a sin. And I hope that that is really an encouragement for us. Firstly, we, in verse 1, we see David appealing to the character of God. Secondly, we, in, in verse two, and five, 2 to 5, we see David, David's recognition of his sin before God. Thirdly, uh, from verse 7 to 9, we see David's plea for forgiveness and cleansing. Fourthly, we see David's plea for restoration with God, verse 10 to 12. And finally, we see David's response uh, for the forgiveness and the restoration that he has received. Verse 14 to 19. So let's look at verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Here David is really pleading to God and he's saying, Have mercy on me, O God. This, this statement of have mercy on me and God is not, a, it's not some sort of a formal statement. He's just, he's absolutely falling at the feet of God and saying, Have mercy on me, O God. I, I have nothing that I can do in this state other than come and plead for your mercy you see he's pleading for mercy on the basis of the steadfast love of God now the steadfast love of God um, is the is this hesed love of God and for those of you who remember from Ruth we looked at the hesed love of God that is loyal that is steadfast the love of God that does not change towards his people and David is not coming and saying Lord you know uh, I have anything to offer to you. He's like, I have nothing to offer to you. And the only reason I can come and beg for mercy is because you're a God who is loyal in your love. 
You're a God who's steadfast in your love. And that second half of verse 1, he says, according to your abundant mercy, and that only reason I can come and plead for mercy is because you are a merciful God. We know that the idea of mercy is us not getting what we deserved. We deserve judgment, and we deserve punishment, and God withholding that is his act of mercy towards us. And so David rightly recognizes that if there's any means by which he can come into the presence of God as this horrible sinner that he is, it has to be appealing to the character of God, to the goodness of God, to the mercy of God, to the love of God. There is nothing else. If he were to come by the justice of God and the righteousness of God, he wouldn't even stand a chance. And this is why it's important that we understand who God is. You see, when we sin, we can quickly forget who God is, right? When we sin, we can quickly run away from God. And we forget about who he is. We forget his character. Sometimes we, when we sin, we forget. We only remember the fact that he is righteous and holy. And that, boy oh boy, that I'm condemned to hell. Because I've sinned over and over again. But as much as God is righteous and he's holy, at the same time he's loving, he's merciful, and he's gracious towards us. And that that is the reason why we can come into his presence. Because of his love and what he has done for us on the cross through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only reason, as it displayed his love through Jesus Christ, that we can come into his presence. And therefore we should have every confidence and boldness to come in repentance, seeking him, seeking his mercy and his forgiveness. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news because Jesus never stops loving us. Because he's steadfast in his love for his children. The gospel is good news because we can take our mess and our sin over to Christ and cry for mercy over and over and over and over again and be assured that the good and gracious and merciful God is faithful to forgive. And we don't do this so that we can continue in sin and take for granted what we have received as forgiveness from Jesus Christ on the cross. No, it's not meant to be so that we can take it for granted. It's meant to be so we have an opportunity to repent, to turn away from our sin and to be right with God. Because if we continue in our sin, that is then the evidence of where we stand with God. You see, this is why we need to be people of the word. We need to be in his presence. We need to be meditating on the character of God, thinking about the character of God. So firstly, we see David pleading with God, and appealing to God on the basis of the character of God. Secondly, David recognizes his sin before God. We see that in verses 2 to 5. Now, particularly in, in, um, in verse 4, we see the heart of his um, um, plea for mercy. He says, Against you, you only have I, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Notice how he uses the word you twice. Now we know from scripture that anytime uh, a word is repeated in scripture, it's trying to emphasize something, it's trying to make a point. And the fact that you is repeated twice is David's way of saying, no, it is against God and God only. Like he's emphasizing that it's against God that his sin is so horrible and so terrible. Now I don't think he's denying the fact that he is sinned against um, uh, Bathsheba and you know, against Uriah and murdering him and against a whole bunch of other people. I don't think he's denying that. 
But he's highlighting the fact that his sin is against God and the, and the seriousness and the depth of his sin against God. But if you think about another way, even in sinning against other people, he has sinned against God. James Boyce in his commentary says, It is only because God is in the picture that even a wrong done to our neighbor is wrong. It is because our neighbor is made in God's image and endowed with rights by God that it is wrong to harm him or her. End quote. Meaning that even when we sin against somebody else, we're sinning against God in that because God is the one who has given them their worth and value. It comes from God. David is not mincing his words here. He's not minimizing his sin. He is stating for it for what it is. Before a holy God, he is absolutely wretched. He says in verse 4, I have done what is evil in your sight. You see, evil is the kind of word that we as believers would perhaps, you know, use to describe Hitler or um, Stalin or perhaps the, the, um, the pro-abortion movement that kills millions of babies. But what David has recognized here is that his sin before God is evil. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, that is a right recognition of sin. When we sin against God, what we commit is evil. And, they, and, and it's a bit, it's, it pricks your heart when you hear that you know, we commit evil to the Lord. But that is the reality of our sin. So David has rightly recognized the sin before the Lord. And in verse 2 and 3, he describes three words to um, uh, describe his sin. So in verse 2 and 3, he says, um, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. So there's three words he uses. He uses transgression, um, iniquity, and sin. Now the word um, transgression carries the idea of crossing the line. It means that there was a, a line set and we've deliberately crossed that line. The law of God has been given. We know the line is clearly marked as to how we obey and don't obey. And you've overstepped that line. The second term is sin in itself. Sin means to have missed the mark, morally speaking. To have completely missed the mark. To have, it's not similar to crossing the line. It's similar but slightly different that if you were trying to aim for a target and you've shot for it, you've completely missed it and gone somewhere else. It's not doing what the intended purpose was in obeying God. And the third term he uses is iniquity. It carries the idea of perversion. So it is as though you were walking in a straight line and then you deliberately decided to turn away from that and just go down your own path. It is, a, and it is sort of a, one of the most, um, it's probably a, the worst way of describing someone's sin. Iniquity against God. You see, David's twisted and adulterous mind that led to the murder of Uriah and the concealment of his sin was nothing short of iniquity. It was horrible. And David here is recognizing that he is a man of iniquity. He is a man who has transgressed against God's law. He is a man who has sinned against God and missed the mark. David should have known better because he was, he was the anointed king, wasn't he? He was the anointed king of Israel who was meant to lead God's people in his ways. 
He knew the law. He knew what was expected of him. And he deliberately, in his sin, sinned against God. And because of his sin, because of his evil transgression, because of his iniquities, he recognizes that he's rightly condemned. That whatever God gives as his just punishment to David, he rightly deserves that. He says that in verse um, um, verse 4. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, David has recognized that God is just and righteous in condemning him. God is just and righteous and blameless in his judgments in whatever consequence that he gives David because he rightly deserves that. He is not making an excuse for his sin. He is absolutely broken over his sin. And he's like, Lord, whatever is your punishment, I deserve that and you are just and blameless in that. Can you see the heart of David? Can you see the brokenness of David in what he's saying? How he does not make excuses. He does not try to polish himself and put up a veneer before God. He realizes that God sees right through and through and through him. And that he cannot hide from God. You see, true repentance appeals to the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. But it has to come because we recognize that God is holy and righteous. We cannot focus on one thing if we don't recognize what are we being forgiven from. We need the good news and the bad news. Because if we do not recognize the gravity of our sin and we do not recognize the the value and the worth of God against whom we have sinned and committed transgression and iniquity and sin, then we will not see the need for forgiveness. Then the grace of God, the forgiveness that comes from God becomes cheap. We don't value it otherwise. You see, David's recognized truly who God is and where he stands before God and his need for forgiveness. In verse 5, David goes further on to acknowledge that, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now David's not making any excuses, but what he's saying is that this sin that I've committed is not something that just came about suddenly. This goes a long way back. This is something, this is the condition that I've had since the day I was conceived, since the day I was born. He's basically recognizing that he's lived a life this way of committing sin and evil before God because that is how he was born. David truly recognizes and confesses that he is absolutely sinful and that his sin is a congenital disease and that only God can save him, only God can change him. So what can we learn from David's confession? We can learn that any sin, small, big, when it crosses the line of what God's word says, it is evil in the sight of the Lord. We have to recognize the gravity of our sin as we stand before God. To the men of GCBC that are listening to me, especially to the men that come up here, and we, and I'm including myself in this, and the Lord has just been breaking me day after day as I recognize more and more of how I'm not like this. 
we come and we pray a prayer of praise and we confession and we repent before the Lord on a Sunday morning. But how does that look like personally in our lives during the week? Or is it just something we do on a Sunday because that is our duty and we are creatures of habit? When we fail, when we sin, do we just mumble, oh Lord, I'm sorry? Or do we truly in our heart realize uh, what we have done before God and then run to Jesus Christ and then it'll be sweeter? Or do we just brush it away? Brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and think that you have not sinned or your sin is small or you're brushing sin under the carpet, then God is reminding you this morning that a sin against God is a serious thing. It's a serious offense against a holy and righteous God. You see, if we do not recognize our sin, we will not see the need to come before the cross daily. If we don't recognize our sin, we cheapen the grace that God has granted to us. And if we don't run to Jesus daily, if we don't run to the cross daily, we see a lesser need for God in our lives. He just becomes this um, person that we pray to to get our needs met. We don't recognize increasingly with thanksgiving the value, the worth of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And we, are not, we won't be made in the image of Christ. Then the less we run to Jesus, the more we move away from him. Now it's important to note that um, you know, David's pleading to God for mercy, not just because of his sin, but because also God has afflicted him. And that's in, um, in verse 8, we, we, um, we, we're stepping a few verses forward. In verse 8, the second half, he says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So David has recognized his sin before God because he's convicted of his sin, but also because God has done a work in his life of breaking his bones. Now in um, Psalm 32, which is, uh, uh, there are seven um, penitentiary psalms, as they call it, that is, uh, you know, uh, that David um, sings about uh, his repentance before the Lord. And Psalm 32 is a parallel to our Psalm 51. And in that he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You see, God has not let David go even though he has sinned. God has been gracious to him through prophet Nathan in, in confronting him with his sin. God has been gracious with him by being heavy upon David and by breaking his bones. You know why? Because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. You see, if we are God's children, he will not allow us to continue in this way. He will not allow us to continue in our sin, in unrepentant sin before the Lord. He disciplines us, he chastises us. Not because we like it, because it is for our good, so that we can turn back to him in repentance. So if you're here this morning as well, and perhaps you are going through something difficult in your life. Perhaps you're going through trials. Perhaps you're going through suffering. Then maybe that's God's way of asking you to examine and showing you and giving you an opportunity to examine yourselves and see where you stand before the Lord. And if you are not, 
and you're still in unrepentance, and then maybe you need to be concerned about where you stand with the Lord. Moving on to our next point, David pleads then for cleansing in verses 6 through to 9. Moving on to verse 6 through to 9. So David's appealed to God and he's acknowledged his sin and now he pleads for forgiveness and cleansing. Look at what he says in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So again, um, similar to what we saw with uh, his description of his sin, David uses three terms again, or three phrases here again to describe um, the cleansing that he requires that God would do in his heart. He says, purge me with hyssop, wash me, and blot out all my iniquities. Now purge carries the idea of completely removing something. So for example, in the treatment of cancer, the idea of purging is completely removing the cancerous cells. It's the idea of leaving nothing behind, completely removing it. When he says, purge me with hyssop, it even more carries an, uh, has a connotation with, um, with redemption. Now, the, the hyssop is a, is, a, is a shrub or a bush um, that was used in the Bible with regards to cleansing. We see this in uh, the Passover, where the hyssop was bunched together and dipped in the blood of the lamb and then smeared on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. We see the hyssop being used in the temple in the cleansing of uh, vessels. We see, fast forward in the New Testament, when Jesus dies on the cross, he's given sour wine with hyssop dipped in it and given to him just before he dies on the cross. See, it has an association with cleansing, with redemption. And David says, purge me with hyssop. Take away all that sin that is in me. The second phrase he uses is, wash me and I will be whiter than so. The washing carries the idea of scrubbing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an action. It's a rinsing and cleaning and scrubbing. And it's a, it's a re- repeated action. But it's something that needs to be done for him to be cleansed. And thirdly, he uses the phrase, blot out all my iniquities. Now, blot out carries the idea of removing something from the book. It's like, you know, you had... You wrote something on a book, you took an eraser and you rubbed it out completely. So that it was no longer, not even the print of it or, the, or the, um, the outline of it is left on that page. I mean, David recognizes that his iniquity before God, it needs to be blotted out. Even though there are slight differences in these terms, they all mean, uh, they're, they're, they're very similar terms, they all have slight differences that emphasize something. And they all emphasize that David of himself cannot cleanse himself. Someone needs to do that for him in his heart. Someone needs to do that in our hearts. And notice how he, does, he says, cleanse me. He doesn't say, forgive me here. See, David has recognized that no, not only does, his, um, does he need to be forgiven, his sin needs to be removed his sin needs to be removed from him. You see, in, uh, when Jesus took upon himself our sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no, no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was made our sin. In that he took our sin upon himself. 
1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. As you look at verse 7 to 9 in, in this um, plead by David for God to heal him, to cleanse him, to forgive him. I just want to ask you, when was the last time we prayed to God like this? When was the last time you were on your knees recognizing your sin and truly being broken over your sin and recognizing that there was nothing you could do to save yourself and that you, you were pleading with God to forgive you? that you truly were broken in your pleading for God to forgive you. You know what commonly happens? We tend to run away. We tend to be ashamed over our sin. And we tend to sort of not deal with it. And we tend to think that somehow we can um, just ignore it and over a period of time, you know, time will heal and time will forget. And that we'll just let it, um, brush it under the carpet. But John 1.9 reminds us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, why do we sing Jesus paid it all on a Sunday morning but completely miss the point during the week? We seem so hard to grasp upon the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. David's uh, describing his condition of unconfessed sin in Psalm 38, verse 3 to 8. He says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. I, all the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed, and I groan because of the tumult in my heart. That is the heart of someone who has not gone to God for forgiveness. It is a tumultuous heart. Because God's design for us in salvation is not that we stay away from him, but is that we run to him. Because that's exactly what Adam and Eve did, didn't they? When they sinned against God, they hid themselves from God. And in our sin, in our flesh that we struggle with, we have that same tendency. If God could forgive a lying, cheating, adulterous, murderous man like David, then how much more will his covenant children be forgiven and cleansed from our sin? When we run to Jesus, we can be rest assured that he will forgive us. Moving on, David pleads to be right with God and he pleads to be restored with God. So having sought forgiveness and cleansing and, and seeking the Lord for his forgiveness, David now pleads, for restoration, look at verse 10 to 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with the willing spirit. Again, David uses three terms here, um, like he's done fast as well in, this, in the previous verses, to um, describe his restoration. Create in me a clean heart, O God. It begins with that and renew a right spirit within me. Now the word create used here is the same word Bera used in Genesis 1 verse 1 when God, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. So this is not talking about some sort of creation that man can 
um, do. This is talking about a supernatural creation that is only possible at the hand of God. You know, and David here recognizes that because he's born in sin, and he's recognized that in, um, in verse 5, because, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he recognized that he's born in sin. And truly, if change needs to happen, there needs to be a supernatural heart surgery happening in his life. And that only God, who is the creator of this universe, can perform that. Can create a clean heart in David. And he says, renew a right spirit within me. The right spirit is a reference to a steadfast spirit. A spirit that does not waver. A spirit that does not follow after sin. A spirit that does not seek after the things of the world. But a spirit that steadfastly seeks after the Lord. And because David recognizes that he cannot, he cannot do it. God needs to restore him. And it is God that needs to do a work in his life that will transform him into the image of God. That will cause him to live a life that honors God. Because he cannot do it on his own. You see, the absolute dependence that David has on God, not just in the forgiveness of his sin, but in the putting on to be able to live for God. The word renew carries the idea of making new or supporting. So David asks God for a spirit that steadfastly, that is renewed and steadfastly follows after God. Second statement, it's not necessarily a, a plea of restoration, but it, it, it has implications in that way. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. What does he mean by that? Well, for starters, the verse does not imply that in the life of a Christian, the Holy Spirit can be taken away. The Spirit is our seal of salvation until the end, and that cannot be taken away. There's a seal for a believer. The Holy Spirit cannot be taken away. That's not what he's talking about here. What David is talking about is, as we know in the Old Testament, is that God, in the Old Testament, his Holy Spirit came and went as he pleased. And he used his Holy Spirit for anointing and consecrating his special people, like prophets and kings, for his own purposes, where he gave them the special anointing. We see that in the case of Saul. For example, in 1 Samuel 9, we see God choosing Saul to be king. And in chapter 10, we see God affirming that as Samuel anoints Saul. And then we, as we keep reading, we see that when um, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, it caused him to prophesy. And when he prophesied, what happened? The people around him saw that God was with him. And the people around him saw that he was anointed by God. But we also see something else interesting about King Saul. Because as we keep reading 1 Samuel further in chapter 16, we see the Spirit of God departing from Saul. Where he loses the anointing that God's given him to be king because of his disobedience, because of his sin. His special presence that God had in his life to lead his people as the king of Israel was lost. And David knows this all too well because it was David that was playing the harp while Saul struggled with, uh, um, with depression. Saul, Saul struggled with the evil spirit that was in him. And so David recognized that and he's pleading with God to not take away his spirit, that God would not cast him away from his presence. 
See, David has tasted and he has experienced what it means to be in the presence of God. He has tasted what it's like to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit as God's anointing for him as king. And the special privileges and the special joy and the special satisfaction and the special strength and wisdom and all that it comes with. And David does not want to lose that. Because being in God's presence is the best thing that you could ever have. David is well aware of that. And he's asking that God would not cast him away from his presence and that he would not take away his Holy Spirit from David. Then he continues on in verse 12. He says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You see, David here is very carefully, if you read it, he's not saying that he's saying, he's not saying restore unto me my salvation. He's saying restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You see, David as king, as being right with God, he enjoyed being in God's presence. We know of the Psalms and the songs that David has written throughout um, the book of Psalms. And David's heart of worship and love and adoration and praise for God just oozing out of that. And it is that same David that has known and tasted of the goodness and the joy of being in God's presence. That is saying, you know, renew, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. You see, when we are as Christians, when God called us, he called us to obey him and to honor him. Yes. He called us to enjoy him. You see, sin prevents us from enjoying the Lord. Sin prevents us from delighting in the Lord. And this life of obedience that we live is driven by our love for God. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we now have a new heart that longs for God. We have a new heart that longs for the things of God. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we now no longer have to fear being cast out from God's presence, but that we can come week after week, moment after moment into the presence of God and still be accepted, still be forgiven, still be taught His word, still be convicted of our sins, still be drawn into a joyful relationship with Him. But when we sin, we certainly will lose that joy. Because that's not God's design. God's design was for us to enjoy Him forever. And sin prevents us from doing that. Brothers and sisters, sin is a reality in our lives. There's nothing that we can do to stop it from being a reality in our lives until we are finally home with King Jesus. But how we respond to God matters. We need to see that it is an offense to God, that our sin is an offense to God, that He is good and gracious and forgives us. But we need to see sin also as something that prevents us from worshipping the Lord. We need to see sin as something that prevents us from honoring the Lord. It's not just the feeling bad and guilty about your sin, but it's the fact that it prevents us from seeing God. It prevents us from honoring the Lord, from worshipping the Lord, from obeying the Lord. It sucks the joy out of our communion with God. Just like Adam, we run away. We were saved to put on Christ. We were created to worship God. 
to know his presence, to enjoy him, to rejoice in him, to have the joy that surpasses every circumstance in our life. And David has resolved in his prayer that he wants God to not take away the joy of salvation, but that he would restore that joy of salvation and uphold him with a willing spirit. Moving on in verse 13 to 18, we finally see the, um, the last point where David responds to being forgiven and restored. Again, in verse 13 to 15, he uses three terms. He says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So there's three things he uses again. He says, I will teach transgressors your ways. That's what he will do. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And in verse 15 he says, my mouth will declare your praise. Upon being restored and forgiven, this is David's resolution that he is resolved to do this in honoring the Lord. Now all these, these three terms have an, uh, have a, carry the idea of a public proclamation. It's not something that is in private. You know, when he says, I will teach transgressors your ways, it carries the idea that no, he's actually recognized himself as one who has transgressed before the Lord and the need to be forgiven and the need to be restored with God and the need to be made right and, and have the joy of salvation restored, that others around him need the same thing. His love, his joy that has been restored back to him overflows in his joy to, and his, his love for others to want them to be seen as restored with God. In the second statement where he says, um, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Now, if you've um, looked at the title of the psalm, it says, um, it says um, to the choir master. So he's written this psalm, and as a nation, they are singing this psalm of David's repentance before the Lord. Talk about being vulnerable before people. Talk about having no fear, no shame, no guilt. But perfect love casts out all fear. It makes him bold to come and to repent and to confess and to proclaim the name of the Lord and to sing aloud of God's righteousness, to sing aloud of the character and the nature of God. And the third response he has in verse 15 is that, my mouth will declare your praise. Again, it's the declaration is the idea of publicly proclaiming uh, the name of the Lord. It, it, it carries the idea of emphatically stating the truths about God and, and making it public in a way um, of worship to God. So David's response here is really an act of worship to God. It's a public proclamation of who God is. David has experienced forgiveness. He's experienced cleansing. He's experienced joy of being cleansed. He's experienced a joy of being shown mercy and grace. He's experienced a joy of renewing his relationship with God. And this overflowing joy from the Lord is causing him to burst out in worship and adoration and praise and declaration and singing of who God is. It's such a joyful thing. You see, when we think about repentance, we often think about repentance as, oh, you know, I've recognized my sin, I've confessed my sin, and uh, I have come to God for forgiveness. But re in the reality is that when we think about repentance, there is an absolute U-turn in how we live. That sin prevents us from seeing God, sin prevents us from worshiping God, and the U-turn is a life of worship to God. A life of repentance is a life of worship and adoration and praise and obedience to God. 
And we often just think about, if, well, if I get rid of this sin and I don't do that sin anymore, I'll be all right. No, no, no. It's not just not doing that sin anymore. It's about turning the other way around and replacing that sin with the worship of God and the obedience of God. He's not putting a veneer of Christianity on the outside here as he's singing. He's not putting a veneer of Christianity on the outside as he's praising God, as he's declaring God's name. He is being genuine. And that we would be like that. It's a struggle. Trust me, I know it's a struggle. But that is the repentance of David and that is what God is calling us to this morning. You see, in, in, in that turning away from God and, and, and wanting to honor and love and proclaim God's name, David is being zealous. He's being radical in this response. I, I, I was blessed to have grown up, like I said, I grew up in a Christian family. And one of the things that uh, my, my parents would often do is we used to have what is known as conventions. And we used to go to these conventions where we had missionaries from around the country come, in India particularly, where I was, uh, missionaries from around the country come and, and, and talk about what the Lord's doing. And we used to have what is known as evangelists and missionaries come to our churches and preach regularly. And, and we used to hear, and I've been blessed to hear of stories of men who've just zealous for the Lord, no commentaries, no resources, no internet. They only had the word of God that they read day and night and day and night to a point that they memorized every single part of scripture. Their love for God was so much that you would never see them apart from a Bible in their hand. I've, I've had the privilege of seeing men and women who were so radically transformed by the gospel that they uprooted themselves from their comfortable lifestyles and went to remote parts of the country to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Facing shame, face, facing persecution, facing hunger because of the radical transformation that the gospel brought about in their life. I've seen men like Puritans who wrote and sang songs out of their deep love for God, out of the deep recognition of who God is, that we still sing in our native language. I've seen men who boldly and confidently in their churches and the public square proclaim Christ at the cost of being persecuted, to being shamed, and yet counted as joy to suffer for Christ. You see what David is implying here is that radical change Repentance brings about radical change, and that radical change brings about radical living. You see, sometimes we're still stuck with the, oh, I'm struggling to read the Bible. And the heart of David is something completely, a repentant heart is something, something completely the opposite of what we're probably struggling with. But that's okay. Because that's where God has us at. But then this is God's opportunity, a means of telling you that to get off the fence, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him and to live this life of radical Christianity that you have been called, the Christ has paid with his precious blood for your life and for your, um, for your, for your soul. And that he requires this of you to live for him, unashamed for the gospel. David concludes the psalm in verse 18 and 19 in his final response to forgiveness. Uh, and he says in verse 18, Do good design in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings. And the whole burnt offerings 
Then bulls will be offered on your altar. If you notice from the previous verse, he's saying you will not, you know, you will, uh, you know, you will not delight in sacrifices. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. He's saying, well, God will not delight in sacrifices. But then here he turns on and says, build the walls up of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. That's because there is a place for when we come and we do what we do in singing in the Lord, in, in praying, in how we live our lives. But that should come out of a repentant heart, not something that is put on. That comes, that comes from a truly transformed heart. And from a truly transformed heart, God is pleased in our sacrifices. God is pleased in our worship. God is pleased in our adoration. Now, there's nothing here that suggests that the walls of Jerusalem were crumbling, at least historically during the time of David, not that I can see. Uh, but, you know, it is, it is probably uh, one way of looking at it is that when David sinned against Bathsheba, and as I said at the start of the sermon, it all began with him neglecting his kingly duties. He didn't go into battle as he was supposed to. He didn't lead his people as he was supposed to. And we see that deterioration continuing on and on and on as we see how his king, um, how as king, he, you know, when Absalom rebelled against him, again, he didn't do anything. He just sort of escaped and um, came out of Jerusalem. So perhaps David is recognizing that in his failure towards God, he has failed his people. You know, and when I think about it, Every time we sin, sin has consequences in terms of our relationships. Never think that our sin against God does not have a consequence on our relationship with others. It always has an effect on the relationship with others. When we do what is pleasing unto the Lord, that also has an impact on our relationship with one another. And here, as David's recognized his sin, he's come back and he's done a U-turn. He's repented. He's come back to the Lord and he's zealous for the Lord. He's zealous for God's people. And that God would build them up. That God would, um, that, that God would build up the walls of Jerusalem and his people. And that they would offer sacrifices to God. Burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered at your altar. As I conclude the psalm for today... The psalm reminds us that we were born in sin. We were born in sin and that because God is a holy God and instead of hiding from our sin, we need to run to him for mercy, forgiveness and cleansing. God is righteous. But as his children, for those of us who are here today that are his children, we have received forgiveness because of Jesus Christ. That your sin and my sin was placed upon Jesus Christ on that cross as he died in your place and my place. And he paid the full penalty of our sin. And in doing that, he took away our sin. And we bear it no more. We don't bear the cost no more. And there is absolute forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And when we run to him, we can be confident that God is merciful and gracious to forgive us. When we run to him, we can have absolute confidence that he will restore our joy, the joy of our salvation. He will cause us to delight in him when we run to him in brokenness. And as restored sinners, that we can have absolute confidence that his spirit will do his work in our hearts in enabling us to worship him, to obey him, to delight in him, to love him, to honor him, and to live the radical life that he calls us to live, being zealous for him. 
If you're here this morning and this is you, you are just like David, perhaps, or you see yourself in that situation. I certainly have been, I've been just broken by, as I've been examining myself and see how, how much I am just like David. But there is sweet fellowship, there is sweet joy when we run back to Jesus and we accept the forgiveness that he has given to us. Because that gives us the freedom to honor him, to love him and to obey him. We sometimes, like I said before, we sometimes can still struggle with our basic relationship with God, but that's okay. Because this is God's way, God's opportunity to tell you to get off the fence and be zealous for the Lord. Turn away from your sin because he's gracious, he's faithful to forgive. Psalm reminds us that our calling is much higher as we run to the cross and we run from the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for David. And we thank you for his life as we see how how depraved our hearts can be. As we see how horrible our sin can be and yet we can see how merciful and gracious you are to us. Lord, we come before you and we confess, Lord, that many of us have hidden sins. Many of us are, some of us may be living a lie that we, we acknowledge Jesus with our lips, but our hearts are far away from you in that we don't love you as we ought to. We are distracted by the things of this world. We are distracted by Facebook and YouTube and entertainment and our works and our families and, and all these other things that we come week after week and confess to you. And yet, Lord, for some of us, that is just lip service and our hearts are truly not transformed. We pray and we, we thank you for this passage and we, we, we think about David and what you have done in his life. Everything that he is saying here, Lord, is that you would do that in him. He is not claiming to do anything of his own other than what you would do in his heart. And this morning we pray for those of us that are struggling in our sin, for those of us who are finding Christianity and our faith so burdensome, or for those of us who are going through the rituals and there is no joy in the Lord, there is no communion and sweet fellowship with the Lord. For those of us that have lost our first love and are lukewarm in our faith, we pray, Lord, that you would... Through your spirit, convict us of our sin. Convict us of our need to repent and to turn away and to be restored into the joy of our salvation. And to that end, we pray that you would work in our hearts. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray.